Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. We are into season two, episode number 26, and today I am thrilled to be chatting with performance dietitian Jen Saigo of the NBA's Toronto Raptors and Athletics Canada to talk energy availability in sport. In this episode, Jen will discuss relative energy deficiency in sport, commonly known as REDS, and her recent study on REDS in female sprinters. Jen digs into the underlying root cause of REDS, low energy availability, as well as shares some common primary and secondary symptoms to look out for. She talks about misconceptions in REDS in power and sprint athletes, as well as the consequences of low energy availability on performance. Jen also shares some insights about new research on within-day energy balance, as well as the difficulties in assessing energy intake and expenditure, and of course, when athletes are circling the drain and struggling to maintain their training and performance. Finally, she rounds things out by sharing some of her keen insights on her work in NHL hockey players, the playoffs, and of course, compressed competition schedules. Terrific insights here from Jen from her own research as well as in the field. You can link to the research paper discussed in this episode at drbubs.com forward slash podcast as well as my layups, the simple actionable tips. If you're interested in more on the importance of fueling for athletes, then be sure to circle back to season one, episode number 49 with Dr. Susan Kleiner. And for more on sprint training or training pro hockey players, then please check out season one, episode number 23 with strength coach Clance Laylor. If you're a new listener, thanks for tuning in. If you're a regular listener, we appreciate your continued support. And of course, if you enjoy the show, uh, please share on Facebook, repost on Instagram, or retweet on Twitter. It is greatly, greatly appreciated. Okay, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, on to the show, Season 2, Episode 26. Enjoy. My guest today is Jen Saigo, registered dietitian and performance nutritionist for the NBA's Toronto Raptors and Athletics Canada. She is also the author of Unmasking Superfoods, a national bestseller in Canada in 2014. Jen, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me, Mark. Awesome. Well, listen, can we maybe start out by you telling folks a little bit more about your background and your journey into working in elite sport? Sure. Um, so I started with an undergraduate degree in biochemistry. I uh, went to McMaster in uh, Hamilton and I think pretty early on realized that I didn't want to stick right to the hard sciences. Um, but as someone who'd been a part of, in a part of sport my whole life, I wanted to find a way to combine sports with science. 
And knowing that I didn't want to really do anything involving orifices or pus or anything green or oozing. Um, sport, <laughs> nice. <laughs> you, can't, you can't fault a girl. For sure. Uh, sport nutrition seemed like a logical uh, next step. So uh, I ended up doing a master's degree at the University of Guelph. Um, and, uh, and then things went from there. Um, I've been in private practice. Uh, I've worked in a lot of different settings. Uh, and I think like anybody, you, you sort of do your due diligence in a lot of different environments. And uh, in 2015, I joined the Toronto Maple Leafs. And in the past year, I've joined the Toronto Raptors officially as part of their uh, performance team. Fantastic. That's fantastic stuff. And obviously today, before we jump in here and talk about the recent study you did there in elite female sprinters, which is really, really interesting, um, to get all the listeners on the same page, can you maybe define a few terms to kick things off here? So relative energy deficiency in sport, uh, and maybe share with folks some of the mm. main systems that are affected there. Sure. So um, this thing, relative energy deficiency in sport, the acronym for it is REDS. Some people call it RED-S, but I'll call it REDS today. Um, it, it was a term that was first coined in 2014 through an IOC position stand. So basically the International Olympic Committee had a group of leading researchers um, get together in a room, more or less, and said, don't come out till you figure it out what this cluster of things that we're seeing presenting in athletes. And I say athletes, not just females, but males as well. Uh, give it a name. So prior to this, the term that many listeners may have been familiar with and, and that is still used is the female athlete triad. Um, and that term has been around for quite some time. Uh, I believe the first position stand on it was, I think, 1993. Um, so since then, uh, we've learned, though, that the female athlete triad, which was originally perceived to be um, a three-component, um, sort of a triangle, sort of stretched into a, eventually a triangular prism, meaning a spectrum, involved energy availability or basically calorie intake relative to expenditure, hormonal effects, um, particularly low estrogen or losing the menstrual period, also known as amenorrhea. And then the third tier of the female athlete triad was bone loss or in the most extreme case, osteoporosis. Uh, maybe in an elite athlete, the more concerning would be something like a stress fracture. So that was the original concept was that by under eating relative to energy expended an athlete female athlete could put themselves at risk of menstrual dysfunction and then bone loss we now understand that the body as in all systems is far more complex than that it isn't just that one two or three things interrelate and nothing else is affected so we now appreciate that the body um, when we are in what we call a low energy availability state when we're not getting enough calories that we have other systems that are affected, things like our endocrine system, for example. So uh, we might see things like thyroid disruptions or changes. We might see blood glucose or blood sugar levels that are lower than they would be predicted to be. We even think, see things like cholesterol going high. Um, that's just one element of this. From a performance perspective, we'll start to see things like um, loss of overall performance, reduced training adaptation, loss of lean mass, which is really important, obviously, for a variety of reasons for athletes, um, reduced glycogen stores. And we can see things like mood disruptions as well. So low mood and depression um, and athletes just struggling mentally to have the get up and go to train or to compete. So it's really multifaceted. And um, that 2014 physician stand that first named this thing called REDS really emphasize that it doesn't just happen in women, but it can happen in men too. 
Now in 2018, they've published an update with the further research in this area. So it's it's not just a growing field. I would say in some ways it's almost an exploding field. Yeah, it's amazing how it touches on you know virtually every system in the body. And you, you mentioned there, obviously, um, male athletes sort of being underappreciated, but obviously this impacts them as well. And you know, if, if we think about low energy availability, is there certain sports or athletes that are potentially more more prone to this than others? Well, certainly, and and uh, you know, the original research in these areas stemmed from um, some of the what you might consider the usual suspects when it comes to. Uh, weight monitoring or emphasizing a low body weight or leanness. So we would see it in things like endurance sports, your long distance runners. Uh, you'd see it in your aesthetic sports, like your gymnasts and your figure skaters. But now when we look at prevalence data, we see that you can see indicators of REDS or this precursor low energy availability. Uh, in in There really isn't a sport that, that has been demonstrated to have no indicators of this in uh, high-performance athletes. So, for example, in our study, we found indicators of low energy availability in sprinters, which is traditionally a group you think, oh, these are not a, a group that that fusses about, you know, losing weight or or being too skinny, so to speak. Um, and in fact, you know, we've had some some leading medical and, and research uh, experts across the world who've said, no, 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 this this is just why are you looking at this in this population? It's not an issue. Um, but we did find, in fact, that sprinters do show signs of low energy availability and that can be a predisposing factor to falling all the way into reds which is basically a syndrome where where you're now severely having effects on performance so it's 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 quite widespread um we are still learning about where it exists in male athletes and how we define it um but we do know that we will see indicators in them as well particularly with things like loss of testosterone lower than normal testosterone levels and loss of performance yeah, it's incredible. You know, so much information on endurance sports, etc. And as you mentioned, the you know, speed and power sports obviously lacking. And of course, you know, your terrific research, um, which maybe we can dovetail into now. Um, you know, what, what was the aim of the study? And can you walk people through the the setup of the study over this uh, you know five month indoor uh, season and elite female sprinters? Sure. So I work with Athletics Canada. So I am fortunate to be able to work with some of the fastest women in in Canada and in the world. Um, and in fact, to be completely honest, when we started our study, we included the males too. I was I was actually very, very interested to get results on the men. And, and the reason why I was is because I absolutely do see the signs and symptoms of REDS in male athletes that I work with across all sports. Um, I get them in my private practice. I see them in team sports. I see them in individual sports. And um, if I can step aside for one second, there's evidence out there that um, – Essentially, the more that we emphasize some of the things that dietitians like myself would try to encourage athletes and active individuals to do, namely eating a real high quality whole foods diet, the more that you push that sort of dietary pattern, believe it or not, you may drive people more into this state. The reason being that as you eat more whole foods and as you reduce the processing of the foods that you eat, they're more filling. Yeah, you just and get more full, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So if you have an athlete who has needs of 3,500 or 4,000 calories a day and they feel just stuffed at 3,200 calories a day, well, low energy availability is defined as the number of calories left for daily phys basic physiological functioning after accounting for what you've done in exercise or training. So putting it another way, if you say, uh, I, I burned 1500 calories training today and I ate 2100 calories. Well, you've only got 600 calories left 
for all your physiological functioning. So we know now that as people eat these really whole foods-based diets, it's sometimes harder for them to meet their energy requirements. I had seen this in athletes routinely across, like I said, a huge spectrum. So I, we wanted to see in, in, in both male and female sprinters, does, do we see indicators? Do we see things like changes in blood values in their resting metabolic rate, their metabolism, um, which might drop because of the loss of muscle mass or because the body's basically conserving energy? Do we see indicators of low bone density? So uh, we, we followed our track team, several members of our track team, um, from the start of their season at the end of the Rio Olympics, starting the 2017 um, cycle through till the end of their indoor season in about April. Um, and we looked at these markers as they changed from the start of the season to the end of the season. And um, to my surprise, we did find indicators of energy availability concerns, even at the start of the season in four out of the 14 athletes that we ultimately um, published on. We ended up only publishing on the females because uh, we didn't have enough males to be able to publish. So basically some athletes were coming into their season already in a state of deficit and showing signs of stress. Um, and then perhaps as no surprise, as the season progressed, those numbers seemed to so basically worsen um, in the sense that we ended up with more athletes with indicators. Basically half of our athletes had Yeah, it's amazing how it's, um, you know, back to one of your points there, it's, it's tough for people to parse out this difference between, you know, the general population just trying to eat a whole foods diet and be healthy versus athletes who are really pushing themselves hard and, and have this huge, massive uh, energy intake that they need to consume and how difficult it can be to get to that number. Um, and of course, as you mentioned, oh. starting out the year four to 13 female sprinters, that's really, you know, I think people would assume coming off of an off season um, that most athletes are sort of ready to go. Is Are there some potential reasons that you guys identified as contributing to, to kicking the season off with that low energy availability? Uh, two of those four athletes, um, because I know them, who they were individually, two of the four of them had just come off their Rio Olympic season. So if you think of it this way, that basically you go into this major event, this, this key, key life event, and you're watching your intake and you're training your brains out and you're traveling. So maybe your nutrition isn't as on point as it would be. And you're basically pushing your body as hard as you can. Is that these athletes, even though those Olympics happened in August, that when we were testing them in November, their body still essentially had not recovered. So it really speaks to the idea that we have to respect the fact that the body does require downtime um, and that you can't reasonably expect yourself to run that, say, hardest marathon and train the most hours you ever have and then turn around and do it again. So um, there, there's a real element here to appreciating that rest and recovery. The, the more you ask of yourself, the more that you'll need to give yourself a bit of a break. Um, what was neat was one of those four athletes who came in in a low energy availability state at the start of the season came out looking better at the end of the season. And she fully admitted it. She got very sick after the Olympics. And she said, yeah, I pushed myself right to my very, very limits. Um, but then what she did for the whole season, the indoor season, was she took really, really good care of herself, ate well, um, made sure that she was fueling for her workouts, not restricting. And she came out looking better at the end of five months of training than she was when she came in. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. And, you know, for folks listening in, can you maybe... Um, identify some of those sort of primary and secondary indicators of low energy availability that you'd see in, in the female athletes? 
Sure. Yeah. And female athletes. Well, we do have one really big one that we can use. Um, and again, this, this, you may be listening, you may not be someone who's going to work with athletes that are, uh, in an Olympic or professional sport environment, but I see this in my private practice with athletes, female athletes of all ages and ranges, and that is looking at menstrual function. So in that sense, it could be as simple as, um, multiple missed or skipped periods, usually at least three months. Um, definitely if we see six months of periods being missed, we call that amenorrhea, um, that's a that's a great indicator. Now, for the record, amenorrhea can happen for other reasons too. So you always want to for exclude sure. um, any other cause that may not be related to energy availability. Um, but at the same time, you, you can usually get a pretty good idea if, if a female athlete has a normal period. They go on a diet, slash their calories in half, and their period stops. I can I can you know <laughs> you probably make a good guess as to why that happened. Definitely, uh, and it's not for some other reason. Uh, beyond that, then we start looking at other uh, indicators, things like low bone density or indicators of bone loss. So what I really watch out for is stress fractures. Uh, if I see a female athlete or a male athlete with a stress fracture, I'm always going to ask the question about energy availability right off the bat. Um, not that every stress fracture is caused by that. It could be biomechanical. It could be a load issue. There could have been mistakes made in training. You could change your footwear. Um, there's lots of causes, but I really, that's something that's a big, big key for me is to start asking hard questions about energy availability. Um, Sends up that red flag, right? Yeah. And you know, what's really interesting is if you look at some of the research out there now on energy availability concerns, it isn't just measuring how many calories the person's eating and how much they're burning. There's indications that even within the same day, what we call within day energy balance or within day energy availability can play a role in this. So as an example, if you take an athlete who is maybe borderline under eating, but what they're really doing is they're, they're cramming all their calories at the beginning and the end of the day, and all their training happens in the middle without very much calorie consumption at all, uh, we can see it's almost like the bar for energy availability concern starts to get raised. Uh, all of a sudden, they'll start to show signs and symptoms, hormonal changes, even when they're, you know, potentially pretty close to meeting their energy needs. Yeah, it's interesting to read, uh, you know, obviously some of those secondary indicators as well. You mentioned, you know, the changes in glucose, uh, you know, T3 thyroid levels, even the LDL cholesterols, insulin, blood pressure, ferritin, all these different constellation of markers that we can start to use to identify these these patterns. And, you know, as, as far as it relates to total caloric intake, is there a you know, a number that when we start to get less than for that resting metabolic rate that you're looking at, that you're starting to be a bit of a red flag for, for athletes? Yeah, so some of the other indicators that you, you hit on lots of those, just so you can hear, the concept of primary and secondary indicators, um, the, the premise of things like the stress fractures or low bone density, the mental dysfunction, um, they're really strong indicators. Some of the other ones are more subtle. So you wouldn't necessarily say, well, you know, geez, this person's got a slightly abnormal thyroid function or their fasting blood sugar is a little low. Oh, they must, they must have red. For sure. Uh, you would want to look at those in conjunction with other stronger indicators. So it's more like you look for those big, strong indicators first and then look and see, well, what else do we have here that's showing us a pattern? What I imagine, for those who are familiar with cardiovascular function, where I think we're going to end up is with something almost like what we have with metabolic syndrome, where you'll have like a t series of tick boxes to say, hey, if you have three out of these five, 
then we can say you probably have metabolic syndrome. I think we'll end up with the same thing here where it'll be a series of tick boxes. And if you have this and one of these three, then we can say with good probability you have low energy availability. So one of those other sort of interesting indicators that we're watching in the research is a sluggish metabolism, low RMR, low resting metabolic rate. And the premise behind that is if you imagine a body that's chronically underfed, well, what's it going to do? Well, it has to sh shut things down, it has to slow down. And so you might lose muscle, which could slow the metabolism down, yes. But even sometimes an athlete who still has what would be considered a normal amount of muscle, that their metabolism looks lower than what you would expect for that large amount of muscle. You'd say, geez, that's a, that's a strong sprinter. Why on earth is her metabolism only 90% of what would be predicted? And what it is is essentially the body is, is slowing down things that may not be critical to survival. So it might say, you know, hey, listen, we're going to we're going to not worry about bone modeling right now because we don't have the calories to do that. Um, we're not going to make sure that we repair muscle tissue as well as we wanted to because we don't have the calories to do that. We're going to shut down that those menstrual function hormones um, because we just don't have the calories to do that. So you end up with this sluggish metabolism. Um, now, that's a little harder for the average person to, to measure. Um, but what is interesting about this is that when you ask someone who's been in low energy availability to do what you need to do, which is eat more, you know, it, it's, it's really difficult to tell an athlete who's been trying to focus on being lean and strong to say, you know, what we're going to solve this problem with is by feeding you more. And they're like, oh, you know, more calories, what's going to happen to me? But what's really interesting is some athletes don't gain weight at all. And many gain, if you do it right, lean mass only are very, very little body fat. Um, and again, depends on how you do it. depends on the athlete. I don't want to guarantee this for everyone, but this speaks to the metabolism that essentially you're giving the body calories to do its basic functioning again. So not all of those calories go into what I would call tissue mass. They don't all become fat or muscle. They go into thyroid function and they go into brain function and they go into bone function and health. So suddenly you have more calories and not necessarily more body weight, which is very reassuring to athletes who, you know, are, are pretty uncomfortable with having to eat more. Absolutely. And yeah, it's amazing how you mentioned, you know, the body starts to prioritize the most important things when there's not enough uh, total energy availability. And of course, once we start putting it back in, then it has a chance to go back and, and, and restore a lot of the function there. And um, it is amazing, obviously, even for athletes as, as well as, as you touched on, whether it's recreational athletes, people who are just trying to lose weight, who, you know, figure, geez, if I start eating more, then things are going to, um, you know, go ahead in the wrong direction when, when really we often see it's the opposite. And, you know, that sort of touches on some of the difficulties with even trying to nail down things like energy intake and energy expenditure. So, you know, for you guys in the study, what were some of the practical challenges or confounders for you? <laughs> oh, you're, you're kicking the hornet's nest here. <laughs> yeah. um, we, we didn't measure energy intake and availability. Um, it is such a fraught area. Oh my gosh, the number of debates there are out there right now among researchers in this area. Um, the reality is when you try to use diet records, you know, as, as well-intentioned as people are when we say, please go out and write down everything you eat or take a picture and weigh it or, you know, take a picture of the food label it came from, um, people lie. <laughs> yeah. Athlete, people athletes just, lie too, right? I was talking to Dr. Sean they, Aaron. Yeah, that's his line. For worse, they lie to themselves, you know, yeah. they may not be doing it to, to throw purpose, us off, right? but yeah, and and you know, and and or they change their their normal routines. You know, either they they they, you know, don't want to admit to the fact that they would normally eat those chips, or 
you know, have that piece of toast at 11 o'clock at night. So they've modified their normal behaviors or they miss the little nibbles. They don't account for that random, you know, one little handful of popcorn. Um, there's a lot of ways that we end up with mistakes or error built into energy intake. So that's problem number one. And then problem number two is the actual expenditure, the burning. And that's a whole fraud area, too, because you you can use all sorts of different methods. You can use accelerometers. You can use um, wearable technology. Um, you can do other, you know, old-fashioned calculations if you want. But every one of those metrics has error built into it. And there's For evidence sure. out there that energy availability concerns can be built in but with as little as a 300 calorie per day deficit that goes on for an extended period of time. We can even see changes in bone resorption, excuse me, within three to four days of energy restriction. So it's a a small margin. Yeah. If you can imagine an athlete who maybe tries to eat clean and they kind of unintentionally cut their calories down by a couple hundred per day, if you give this an extended period of time, all of a sudden they're in this low energy availability state. But your detection method, looking at the blood work, or sorry, looking at the um, the intake or the or the expenditure sheets that maybe you're having them the logs they're keeping, you you may not be able to sense it. You may not be able to pick it up. So it's a really challenging area that uh, researchers, frankly, haven't yet figured out what to do with. Um, how do we? It would be great if we could quantify it. Uh, I will say this. I was just at the American College of Sports and Medicine Conference last week, um, and there was a, a paper that was presented there that has just been accepted. I haven't seen it yet with my own eyes, but you were asking about certain cutoffs. If we could, in some imaginary world, know what is the, the number of calories per day or the deficit that would cause these problems. Um, in this particular paper, they suggested, this came out of the U.S. military, that it's not so much about a calorie deficit of, you know, 300 calories a day or 1,000 calories per day that's the issue. They found that their performance indicators and their military um, personnel that they were studying, they saw those performance metrics drop when they hit a cumulative deficit of about 19,000 calories. So in other words, whether you get there by having a deficit of 300 calories a day for an extended period of time or 1,000 calories uh, per day for 19 days, hypothetically. Either way, once you hit about that total 19,000 calories, that's when performance is going to drop off. If that's true, and this is the first time I've become aware of this uh, sort of evidence, then that, if we if we could get a rough estimate of energy intake and expenditure, this would be huge for us to be able to say, hey, here's your safe lean down state. You know, you need to lean down for competition. Sure you can. But once you've crossed this line, here's where we're going to see problems. Now we've got to feed you a bit more again. And then we can take you maybe into another deficit for a period of time. Uh, I'm very, very interested to see what we can show in that sort of research down the road because uh, athletes need to lean down sometimes. But if they go too far, then we end up in a hole and it's really hard to get out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you mentioned there, it'd be great to have that, you know, getting so close to that red line. Oftentimes it would be phenomenal to have a uh, some more metrics and some data to really pin down where where that line is for athletes. And, you know, in your study there, you mentioned that 7 out of 13 of the athletes um, by the end of the year had at least one primary and secondary indicator of the low energy availability. Um, you know, could you circle back to, again, reiterating to folks, what are some of the performance consequences there and, and what were maybe some of the um, – the, th- the themes for you amongst the athletes of uh, you mentioned before kind of missing meals in the middle of the day, things like that. 
Yeah, yeah. So in terms of performance, so it was a little due to us um, from an athletic perspective. Well, there's, you know, there's some big and obvious ones. If you can just imagine losing muscle because you don't have enough calories, then you're going to lose strength. And some of those are, you know, sort of fairly self-evident. Um, then there's the injury component. So if you're having a stress fracture, well, you're not going to be able to train. So that, that one would be big one. Um, we also see uh, more immune system disruptions, uh, more illnesses. So there's also a, a performance element secondary to that. where You're not able to train or compete because you're sick more often. Um, so those are all certainly important. But one of some of the ones that I'm interested in, in particular with the athlete populations I work with, is that there's some evidence that when you're in a low energy availability state, you'll lose explosiveness and that sort of quick reaction time, um, the ability to produce force, the rate of force development. And for athletes who work in a lot of power sports, which is what I tend to work with, um, and, and again, whether that's a, a sprinter or a gymnast or a hockey player, there, there's a lot of commonalities there, which is you need to be real quick. You need to be able to explode. So knowing that if, if a player or an athlete or a gymnast or whomever is in a low energy availability state, if they've fallen all the way into reds, and this has gone on for a while, you're just going to have a more sluggish athlete. Um, and, and, and then the funny thing is when that happens to that athlete and they've been maybe watching their diet and they've been eating super clean and they've been training really hard and they feel like they're getting slower or they're struggling to do whatever they used to do in the gym, their strength is going down. Well, guess what they tend to do? Cut back more calories. Train yeah, more. It's a vicious cycle, you know? right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, I'm obviously not doing enough, so I better get, get in there and work harder. And then now we really see that the, the, you know, they sort of circle the drain, so to speak. And, and the deeper and the longer they seem to be in this hole, the longer and the harder it seems to be to pull them out. So it's a, it's, it requires a real uh, integrated approach and a lot of, um, of support and trust, frankly, from the athlete or the active individual to know that, hey, we've got your best interest in mind. We want you back feeling great again. We want you on that start line or, you know, starting the game again like you used to. You got to trust in the process. And if we do this, yeah, you might gain a couple pounds, but let's look at how you're feeling. Let's look at your performance metrics. Yeah, it's amazing on the neuromuscular side of things and, you know, the reaction time being impacted so heavily. And of course, the margins for winning and losing being so slim. I mean, it's it's so crucial. And so could you give give folks maybe, you know, what are some of the the themes that you might relay to your athletes when you start to see that this picture is taking place in terms of on a nutrition front, is it kind of meal frequency through the day? Is it certain foods getting more in? Where do you tend to go first? So, I, I mean, I think the first thing to look at is um, what, what sort of conditions or signs or symptoms is that athlete going to present with? And one of the ones that is, sounds kind of vague and nonspecific, but I find is a really good indicator is that athlete who comes to you and says, honestly, something's wrong with me. I, I don't know what it is, but I'm just not myself. Um, and of course that can be for a lot of different reasons, but it's that sort of indescribable flat line in their performance. So it could be, um, that they're not improving. Um, oftentimes let's say in a young athlete who you would predict should be getting faster or stronger or better every season. And they're not, they, they, they're starting to maybe flatline or even decline in their performance or in a more mature athlete who maybe has increased their mileage or their volume or they've made every effort you would expect to lead to a really good outcome and things aren't happening for them so what tends to happen in that situation is that you'll get an athlete who says oh you know okay so I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do better I'm gonna train more um, something's not right so I'll push harder 
or they'll say, I'm going to eat more clean. I'm going to cut down more sugar. I'm going to make sure that my, my proteins are super high and lots of vegetables. And that all sounds great, great sort of on paper, sounds healthy. But when you have someone who's already in a deficit and, and remember the idea behind low energy availability is that you don't have enough calories to meet your basic physiological requirements for basic functioning your energy intake is too low. So if they go and say, okay, I'm, I'm not doing well, so I'm going to train more or eat even less, all you do is dig a deeper hole. So if you're seeing that, if you if you suspect that in an athlete, then what you want to do is, is get a good sense of their overall calorie intake. Um, now, assessing calorie intake is a challenge for everyone. I don't want to pretend that I've mastered it. There is no research group out there that's figured out exactly how to nail down how many calories a person's consuming. We know that food journals have error built into them. People underreport their intake. But at the very least, whether it's having a food log or doing a diet recall, uh, whatever you need to do to get a sense, they, they could use, say, MyFitnessPal to, to get a sense of what their calorie intake and then also to equally look at their energy expenditure. So what are they, what's their training load look like? How much are they working out? Um, and start to at least ballpark those two numbers. Now, if the gap is small, then it could be tricky. If, it, if that athlete has just been a little under in their calorie needs, but for a really long time, then precision is important. But what I find often happens is that the gap is so darn big, you can't even miss it. You have an athlete who is um, maybe their energy expenditure is 2,700 calories a day and their intake is 1,300 calories. You see that and you go, okay, I know exactly what this is. This is an energy availability issue, full stop. It's We don't have to fuss about a calorie here or a calorie there. So um, as an example of that, uh, there I, I worked with a number of triathletes over the years, but there's one who's uh, coming to mind right now who's a, a male triathlete, uh, Ironman, um, very high level. And he had had, you know, a lot of great success in progressing every year. And then all of a sudden he hits the wall. And it was all because he did that whole um, chasing that lean down sort of concept. And so he'd done it for a couple of seasons, really, really struggling. And so when we identified the issue, I said, okay, well, we're going to add back in those calories. And the way we do it usually is it, you don't do it all at once. So in that example of, let's say, someone who's eating 1,300 and they need 27, if you come along and say, hey, that's great, uh, let's give you 1,400 extra calories a day, they're going to be very, very uncomfortable. Their their GI system is not going to tolerate that much food. Um, they're going to feel stuffed. They're probably going to put on body fat. They're going to kind of hate you, to be completely honest, as a practitioner. Um, they'll break up with you pretty quickly. So, so the strategy that I employ and that's used in some of the papers that are out there is to look for where the gaps are in the day, where the biggest issues are. And then add back in calories, maybe around, say, 300 calorie a day increments. So that 1,300 calorie athlete, we take them up to 16. We do that for a few weeks. We let them adapt to 1,600 calories. Then we push to 19, let them adapt to that and that. And then we slowly progress it all the way up to meet their energy needs. When we do that, we give the body a chance to adapt. We give the body a chance to build muscle instead of adding body fat. Um, and then ultimately, hopefully, the compliance of the athlete is higher because they they feel like they get the positive results without a really rapid weight gain. And, you know, I go back with that athlete, that triathlete, as we did this, 
you know, he, he did gain a little bit of weight. And I think that's really important to be upfront with is that there could be some weight gain. There isn't always, it could sometimes be uh, a little bit of a, uh, uh, sort of n- small weight gain from say glycogen to start. So a little bit of water weight gain to start, but sometimes there's very little after that because all the extra calories aren't going to building tissue. They're going to things like building bone and, and getting hormones up, upregulated. So, so they may not even gain weight, but this one triathlete, he did gain a little bit of weight. And he said, you know what though, Jen, honestly, those extra few pounds, he said, I feel like I'm a freight train. He's like, I feel like I'm unstoppable. Like I'm so fast and so strong, almost dangerous out on the course. Like, like opponents get out of the way. And and he's come out now and he's presented about this at conferences um, and talked about his issue with energy availability. And now that he's fixed it, he's performing beautifully. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, when we see this, we want to add back the calories, but really fuel for the work required. So we want to look at those gaps in the day um, that where calories may be missing and plug them back in. So if that's recovery during the workout, breakfast, dinner, it doesn't matter. Start there and then gradually spread the calories out over the rest of the day. Yeah, it's amazing how it's just such a huge signal to every other system in the body in terms of being able to perform, being able to recover. So great, great insights there. And you know, if we shift gears here a little bit to your work with hockey players, we just finished the uh, NHL playoffs, obviously intense, uh, perhaps the hardest playoff of any major sport with all the physical contact. Can you talk about some of the nutritional considerations when athletes are playing you know, in a compressed schedule like that at really high intensity? Yeah, I mean, hockey playoffs, I mean, you know, hats off to teams, uh, you know, like Pittsburgh that have won multiple cups in a row. I mean, the playoffs just go on and on and on. Um, The weather's warm, you're still playing. And so you've had this really long season and then you have this playoff run. Um, that can go on for basically months. So, you know, it's, it's something that's difficult, but even if we're not talking in the pro level, but um, any athlete who's, who's in an extended season in any sport where there's physical demands and there's contact demands, you know, you're dealing with a body that's deeply uh, beaten up, bruised, battered, and so on. So, you know, at this stage, this is not the time to start anything that's really fancy in terms of nutrition. Um, everything should be managed through the regular season or even before that. Um, so likewise, again, if you're not a hockey practitioner or athlete, but you're playing other sports, you want your sort of your bread and butter nutrition to happen early on. And then the playoffs really, it's sort of a survival thing is you want to make sure that you are fueling enough. It's not time to be leaning down intentionally, at least. It's not a time to be trying to, you know, make new big dietary changes. Um, and and again, if it does mean, in my opinion, that you add a pound or, or whatever in playoffs, I don't see that as the end of the world. Because what I want to do is make sure that a player isn't tired left over from the regular season, which can happen. Um and getting tired maybe of the food that they've been eating and then under fueling. That's not the time that we want to do that, especially when we're talking about uh, recovery. And, you know, I'm reminded as I say that about, um, I was just at the American College of Sports Medicine Conference last week um, and Sean Arendt um, works with the Rutgers women's soccer team, not hockey, but soccer nonetheless. And, And he was saying, you know, their focus so much is on when they have a short turnaround between games, which is what happens in playoffs, is there's no time to waste when it comes to getting fuel in post-game. So the main thing for me would be pleasurable foods, um, foods that make players happy, 
really rapid recovery. Um, and when you can get in those little interventions, like say some of those brightly colored um, berries and things like whether that's um, a little bit of an acai type thing or spinach or some of the products out there that could potentially minimize muscle damage and muscle soreness, plug those in. But really, for me, this is about taking good care and not trying to be restrictive. Um, and if you can have a little bit of fun, too, somewhere in this process, you know, maybe maybe once in a while it's time for somebody to have a chocolate chip cookie baking festival or something. Um, I think anything that can lighten the mood is not a bad idea in the playoffs. Yeah, such a great point there that, that you know, adaptation versus optimization in this period of when it's the playoffs or these huge competitions is not the time when we need to be experimenting with different fueling strategies to to create these adaptations. It's time to be able to to recover and perform and get the fuel in. So, you know, a great, great tip there in terms of, yeah, loosening the rules a little bit and making sure they're bringing on those foods on board, maybe some new foods. So terrific stuff there. And, you know, Jen, I want to definitely respect your time here. So um, last question for you, if we're Rounding things out here, if we circle all the way back to, you know, your study in, in the elite female sprinters and this topic of low energy availability, you know, what's one piece of advice then that you would give um, an athlete, female or male on this topic? Well, I think we have to realize that sport at the highest level demands a certain amount of adherence to a high quality diet. And yes, in some cases, leanness is a part of a sport and it might be leanness in the sense of um, reducing fat mass, or it might be even making weight for a particular sport where it's just it's just part of the sport. You just have to. So I think on the one hand, we have to respect the fact that, yes, we want to make sure body composition is optimal for that particular athlete, for that particular sport. And at the same time, we also want to not push the athlete to a point where they develop this low energy availability state or fall all the way into reds. Uh, and that, you know, it is that's the ultimate challenge i think for all of us as practitioners for strength and conditioning for coaches is we want to push right to the razor's edge and not over and to that point i'm going to um maybe invoke the name of, of one of my friends um someone i work with very closely trent stellingworth who talks a lot about he, he works with uh, with me um at athletics canada and he talks about the idea of body composition periodization and about not being, as he calls it, razor thin all year all year round. The idea that when you're preparing for competition, when it's peak time for you, that's when we would expect you to be in that peak physical condition. But when it comes to your off season, when it comes to your general preparation time, it's okay to allow yourself to have a bit of a break, give your body a bit of a break. We have this impression out there that we should all look like the front of a magazine, 365. It's not realistic. It's not realistic. <laughs> Absolutely. So picking that time of the year with your coach, or with whoever's designing your program or for your athletes in their program and helping them to understand, okay, guys, now's the time we're going to get the ice cream out of the freezer. Now's the time when we're going to dial it in because the really critical stuff is coming up. And then we're going to take dial it down a bit and relax a bit. We're going to have, you know, that piece of pizza you've been craving or whatever. Um, and chill out and then get back to those healthy habits and get back to being in peak shape. And most athletes could only be in peak shape, I would say, about twice a season. So you really have to be smart about picking the right time of year to do it. And again, I'm not just speaking to Olympians here. This is the same if you're a marathoner or if you're someone who's training for um, your own competitive event. You can't expect to be in peak competition form all year long. So pick it 
work towards that time and then give yourself strategic breaks. And then hopefully if that 19,000 calories I mentioned is the, that imaginary cut point, you never quite get there. You always pull yourself out just before you get to sort of the dark side, so to speak. And then hopefully we have a nice long, healthy career, minimize injuries um, and, and enjoy the benefits of getting better season over season. Great stuff. That's such a great comment in terms of, I think oftentimes recreational athletes are always trying to be peaking all year long. And when you let them know that, as you mentioned, the elite athletes are looking for like twice a year to really be peaking. It really, it's a huge juxtaposition between the two camps. So great, uh, great emphasis there. And, Great stuff here, Jen. Thanks so much for taking the time today. You know, where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your fantastic work? Uh, sure. So I have a website, and it's just my name. It's uh, jennifersigo.com. Sigo is a bit of a weird name, so it's S-Y-G-O.com. Um, I'm on, I'd say I'm on Twitter more than any other social media, um, and that's just, again, when you got a unique name like mine, it's pretty easy. <laughs> so you just find me on Twitter at jennifersigo. Um, and you can always contact me uh, through either of those sites if you got any questions or uh, follow-up thoughts. I enjoy hearing from people. So happy to happy to connect. Fantastic. We'll definitely include the link to uh, the, those links and the link to the paper discussed here in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Uh, thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Jen or want to leave a comment on today's episode, we'd love to hear from you as well. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. And of course, if you enjoyed the show, please take a minute, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite platform. Thanks again and uh, see everyone next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.